Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. lot of energy in the room. Everybody doing okay? Good. I don't know, have you ever gone through a period of time in your spiritual journey in which you feel like God's just not saying much? Just uh, suddenly gets quiet and I don't know. I feel like there's times in my journey in my life when I, uh, I know God has spoken pretty good with that. I mean, I, I can look back and, you know, whatever perspective you take, my upbringing, my background, my perspective, I can see God working in my past in inexplicable ways at times, in ways in which I would say, when I was going through that, I didn't feel like God was really in it. But now that I'm through it and I look back, I can see how God was doing incredible things that were way more than I could have comprehended. Wish I could have felt it when I was going through it. Wish I could have seen it then, but I couldn't. I couldn't feel it and I couldn't see it. But looking back, I I have a resume uh, of ways in which God has intervened in my life that I'm I'm pretty sure you'd have a hard time convincing me that these were not miracles of God and of His grace and mercy in my life. I just... You know, And then I also find, this is for me personally, but as I look forward, I think God's got it under control. I'm not worried about the distant future. It's all going to be fine. I, I am not worried about it. It's today that more is the issue. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, my retro faith is awesome, and my future faith is good. It's my current faith that seems to be a little bit wacky. <laughs> And maybe that's just symptomatic of human beings. I don't know. I know we're in good company. I know that a part of the biblical story, and I I love it when people talk about the Bible as propaganda, you know, that they it's just written by people who are trying to get you to believe some stuff. Listen, these are the, some of the poorest propaganda writers in human history. Because they say way too much. They, do. they say way too much about the human condition. They say way too much about human beings. They say way too much about faithless people. They say way too much about people who are filled with doubt. Way too much. Way too much to be good propaganda. So that when I search the scripture and I start to try to find people with whom I identify, there's no shortage. First Samuel is one of those places where the story is unfolding. And what you have is you have the period of the judges has come to an end. So they're kind of done. There aren't any real leaders who are leading in Israel. And the time of the kings has not yet come. It's still decades away. And so you have this period of time in the history of Israel that's sort of lacking leadership. We know nothing about that in our culture. Take your time. And we're told in the opening of Samuel that the voice of God was rare. I mean, that is written in there. It's actually written down. I mean, they couldn't just leave that unsaid. 
They had to say that out loud. They couldn't just make you think, well, there were a bunch of spiritual people that were hearing from God all the time. There were a couple of churches that were doing real well. No. In the whole nation of Israel, the voice of God was very rare, almost unheard of, almost unrecognizable as we find out as the story starts to unfold. And so here we are in this limbo land, and we're finding that, that the whole nation of Israel is fragmented. Everybody's sort of doing their own thing. There is no central sort of core. There's no central leadership. Everybody's sort of just making their own way, figuring it out on their own. And Eli is the high priest. He would be the one person who would be the authority figure right now without any judges and without any kings. He's sort of sitting in the middle. And what we find out about Eli and his family who are operating the temple, which is the one central place that people sort of come you know, to kind of get whatever help they're going to get and guidance. We find out that Eli and his children have corrupted that process. In fact, they're doing unspeakable things. They're siphoning off the wealth of Israel, one. They're taking for their own personal pleasure and their own personal benefit the wealth of Israel, the wealth of the temple, the wealth of the worship. And they're, you know, at Shiloh, at the tabernacle. It's not a temple yet, but at the tabernacle, they're, they're siphoning off the wealth. And there's all kinds of corruption going on in the house of Eli. So the one leader that could be doing something is actually doing more harm than good. And in the middle of that big story, there's a little story that gets inserted, and it's about a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is wanting a child. And her whole world is about wanting this child. She's not involved in the geopolitical spectrum. She's not really watching the manifest way in which God is working. That's not where her life is. It's not where her heart is. It's not where her brain's working. She's thinking about this one thing. I want to have a baby. And the two worlds intersect because Hannah comes to Shiloh to sacrifice to God, to ask God to give her a child. And there's an encounter between Eli and Hannah. You've read the story, I'm sure. If you haven't, 1 Samuel, go read it. It's a great, great story. And in anguish, as Hannah prays, and Eli assumes that she's been drinking because she's acting so weird. <laughs> and she explains to him, no, this is actually a broken heart. This, this is an alcohol. This is actually a broken human spirit. This is what it looks like when a person comes completely undone. And here I am. And Eli blesses her and sends her on her way. And she conceives and gives birth to a child. Now, she's promised God that she's going to give this child back to God. And in the almost imperceptible way, God is beginning to speak, beginning to move. And she takes Samuel and she dedicates him to God at Shiloh. And she leaves him there to be raised in the house of Eli. And as, Eli, as Samuel grows, he, he one night is asleep and he hears a voice calling his name, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and he goes to Eli and he goes, what do you want? And Eli goes, hey, I didn't call you. Go back and go to sleep. And he goes back and lies down. And the voice calls again, Samuel, Samuel. And this is where we're told because the voice of the Lord was very rare. People had no idea what it was. Wouldn't that be weird? God's actually saying your name and you're like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just hearing voices. Probably need more medication. <laughs> he comes again to Eli, to Eli, and Eli says, go back. I didn't call you. The third time it happens. Finally, Eli says, well, maybe God's speaking. And he says, this time when you hear the voice, say out loud, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so little boy Samuel goes back, and he lies down, and he hears the voice, and he says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And God begins to prophetically speak to him about the things that are going to happen and what is next. Now, Samuel will become a great prophet. 
In fact, Samuel will be the prophet who anoints the first king of Israel. He'll be the prophet who deposes the first king of Israel. He'll be the prophet who anoints the second king of Israel, David, and ushers in the Davidic kingdom. And the great golden period of the monarchy of Israel. But in this moment, these very tiny, small, incremental ways, I think we learn something vital about worship. That in fact, the heart of worship is when you and I can honestly say this out loud. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That all the other stuff, all of the worship, all of the style, all all of opening the word, all of this process in which we engage, all the things that we talk about in terms of worship is to prepare us, to bring us into a moment when our hearts, our minds, our spirit are quieted in such a way, are reverenced in such a way that we are finally ready at a soul level to say this out loud. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And what's shocking in that story is how seldom we're ready to say that. How often we are not thinking about this, that we ought to take note of this. We ought to be quick to listen. We ought to be slow to speak and slow to become angry. That that's not something that we ought to stumble onto from time to time, but it ought to be, it ought to be descriptive of our entire disposition of our world, of our life, of our attitude, of our spirit. That in fact, that's what we're engaging. When we are engaging other people, they find in us a spirit that says, I'm quick to listen. Why? Because we're magnanimous human beings. No. Because we're looking up and listening. Because we are worshipers of a divine God. Because we don't think we figured it out. Because we don't think we're the be-all to end-all. Because we don't think our opinion is the top of the food chain. Because we recognize that while we hope we're getting it right, we don't know if we are. Can I get an amen? Amen. I hope you're saying amen at home. Because this matters. This spirit, attitude, disposition of believers. David, in writing the 19th Psalm, is dealing with this. I love this about the 19th Psalm. The 19th Psalm is a complicated piece of work. In fact, I just will tell you this. It is my ambition at some point in my life to memorize the 19th Psalm. Now, you probably know if you've been around a while that I like to memorize Scripture. It really helps the voices in my head. (laughs) I cannot memorize this passage of Scripture. This is just not, it just will not stay in my brain. And maybe it doesn't have to. Maybe it is that profound that, It just needs sometimes to have the whole world slow down and have maybe for a moment an opportunity to just listen. I love this about the 19th Psalm, not only its complexity. In fact, it's so complex that scholars tell us that they've come to believe this. Now, can you you get your brain around this arrogance for a minute? (laughs) That they've come to believe that what David is doing here is that he's written two separate poems... But somehow over time they got mashed together. Because there's two distinct themes happening. Like a poet couldn't cram two whole themes into one whole poem. (laughs) I mean, isn't the analytical piece of that, isn't that just mind-boggling? Well, I guess David was just confused and he left his notes and he didn't mark his pages correctly. So now we've got two poems crammed into 19. I don't think so. 
I think we just have a beautiful, complex piece of writing from a man who is struggling to hear the voice of God, but listening. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold and much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Powerful words. Four things that I draw here that I think matter. Number one, God may seem silent. I think it's just an admission that for all of us, including David, it seems that there are times in our journey in which God is quiet. And maybe you're going through a time like that. Maybe that's what's happening to you. Maybe in the middle of this crazy political climate that we're in, of the pandemic, of all of the divisiveness that goes on, which, by the way, either we're part of the solution or we're part of the problem. And sometimes we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because just talking can be divisive. And sometimes it just seems like God's not talking. And we wish he would. Just explain yourself. I mean, I'll do whatever you want. I mean, I, I, I gave up self-will a long time ago. Long time ago. I gave up self-will when I, you know, finally hit my head for the umpteenth time and said, you know what? This isn't working out that well. I'm not that good at self-governing. <laughs> I'm probably going to need a little help. It turns out I'm impulsive. I'm driven by human appetites. It turns out I'm probably going to need someone that maybe is, I don't know, more mature than me. And a lot of us have gotten there. It's just knowing what that means today, right now, in this moment. What are you saying right now? Because I can't hear you. And I think David is simply acknowledging the reality that very often in our journeys we have to take a deep breath and we have to say, here's the heart of worship. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm not hearing anything, but I'm listening. And I acknowledge that there are times in my journey where I have great retro faith and I have great future faith, but my current faith is struggling. And it's struggling because I can't hear what you're saying right now, right now. But David doesn't leave it there. 
He acknowledges this truth. And then he moves on to the second point, and that is, even when he's silent, he's always working. He's always working. And so David then takes this example. He says, if you, if you want to just take a minute and you want to see how God's working, why don't you go outside and look up at the sky? Because here's what you're going to see. You're going to see order that is being brought out of chaos. In fact, you're going to see such an intricate dance of order that it ought to testify to your soul that maybe God's not speaking in some specific way. So you need to go out and look up. And you need to know this. That God clothes himself in glory. So even when he's silent, he's not really silent. Even when he's not saying anything, he's really still saying something. You, you, you do get the juxtaposition of the poem, right? He uses no words, no speech comes to him, yet his words fill the universe. What? Because he's saying this, you walk out there and look up. And guess what you're going to see? You're going to see an intricate dance of the stars. That out of what may look like to you, this vast universe of chaos is not chaos at all. In fact, it moves like a well-tuned timepiece. And oh, for those of you who worship the sun, God built a tent for the sun. He brings the sun out of the tent every day. Like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. See, in the olden days, the bridegroom was something... Not now, but there was a time. <laughs> now it's the bride that comes out of the chamber. <laughs> it's like a bridegroom coming out of the chamber. He makes that, that circuit across. You worship the sun, I worship the God of the sun. And he may be silent, but he's present. And he's always working. Number three, he's always speaking may seem silent, but he's always working. And sometimes I need to tell myself this. In the middle of the science, he's working, he's working, he's working. He's working, he's working, he's working. I know he's working. Look, there's the sun. You know what? Yesterday at 12 o'clock, it was about there. <laughs> Last year, about this time, it was there. Tomorrow, it'll be a little bit further down on the horizon. But guess what? In the year from now, it'll be about back, right back there. It'll be right back about right there. Because that's how this thing works. Because God's working. And even when he's silent to me, he's working. And I can see his presence bringing chaos out, bringing order out of the chaos. And I know that that's how he works in the universe. He works in here. And I don't have the expanse of eternity for him to work in. I've got a really narrow space. So it's harder for me to see. So I'm looking up. I'm looking up. It's hard to look up when my mouth's open. It's hard to look up when I'm talking. It's hard to look up because when I'm talking, I'm preoccupied. I'm down here in the stuff. In the stuff. What did you talk about yesterday? Important stuff. What's for dinner? The house is a mess. I don't understand it. Did the dog poop again? Important stuff. Amen? Then we go, I don't know why I feel so sad. Well, you talked about dog poop. Uh, it's not a thing. I mean, it is a thing. But it, in the grand scale of the universe, dog poop is very small. Very small. What we have for dinner, very small. How much the electric bill was, very small. Okay, big right now, but kind of, you know. So David says, he's, and then he says, number three, he's also always speaking, by the way. Though he uses no words. That God speaks life into this world and into this universe. 
And he uses two illustrations to try to help us understand. If you don't think he's speaking in the world of nature, slow down. I think it's one of the weirdest things in the world to go to the beach. I mean, have you just observed people at the beach, how weird they act? That's like unique in any other setting in the world. You go to the beach and people are sitting, staring out at the waves. For hours they do this. Amen? I mean, where else would this be acceptable behavior? You see somebody at the mall doing that? You're calling somebody. Because something happens to human beings who sit in that moment. Amen? I mean, they, not everybody there understands what's happening to them necessarily, but they do know this. Their world is getting reordered in the vastness of that moment. And there are very few places in the world where you can sit and feel that. Where you can consistently sit in that space and look at the infinity of that ocean and the rhythmic way in which it moves. And you can get that feeling inside of you. And David is simply saying, you think God's quiet? You may not be know how he's speaking specifically into your moment, but he is speaking. And he's speaking through nature. And if you take a moment and a breath, and you say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this for a few minutes. Something in you will shift. Because he is speaking. Lay outside tonight and stare at the stars. Don't let anybody see you because they'll report you. But lay outside and look and listen. Because he is speaking. And then he uses a second illustration. And oh, by the way, he's not just speaking out there. He's speaking in here. The precepts of God. The, the, the admonitions of God bring life. They true. They radiant. Emmanuel Kant says these words, The sky above us and the moral law within us witness to the same God. The sky above us and the moral law within us witness to the same God. We have a longing in us for what's right and good and just. That's why we're mad. Because we have a longing in us. Now, here's the ironic part of that. Good people. And I'm not talking less, I'm not writing this story large. I'm going to write it very small. Really good people who all claim to worship God don't all agree on stuff. What? Here's a shocker. That's true in this church. I mean, you don't have to take a big, very, very big sampling. We can take one tiny sampling, this church. That there are people in this church who all want to worship God and love God, but don't agree on stuff. I get emails from all of them. <laughs> John Wesley used to have this process that he went through. Because, you know, John Wesley, as he, he, he sort of tried to figure out what God was doing in the world and in his life and in his heart and how to become, how to hear God speak, how to feel the presence of God, struggling, being honest about that, turned out it was very controversial. And so he had a lot of people, a lot of critics, a lot of people who came after him. He was ultimately excommunicated from the Anglican church. That had to be tough. And as he advanced in his career, he would say to people who called him out to argue, he would say to me, okay, before we talk, is your heart right with God like my heart is right with God? Then we can talk. We won't argue and we won't fight. We will be two humble servants seeking the will of God, knowing that we will not agree on everything, but together understanding that the true heart of worship is uttering these words, speak, Lord, your servant 
is listening. I am slow to speak. I am quick to listen. And I am incredibly slow to become angry. You know what makes me mad? People's motives. And isn't it amazing how quickly we assess motive to people? We read their post and we go, you know know what this means? No, and neither do you. Maybe it meant that was funny. Maybe it meant they read it and didn't get it, but they posted it anyway. Maybe they're not that bright. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Do you? But that's what makes us mad, isn't it? That we assess motive. Here's what they're doing and why they're doing it, and this is what that means, and this is what... I'm so mad about all of it. But what if I changed that narrative and I just said, God, I don't know all the answers, but we're two humble servants seeking. And I don't know if they're listening or not, but I know my job is to listen. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. You seem silent, but I know you're working. And in fact, I know you're not silent. And number four, he comes to this last moment in the psalm in which he says that the real heart of worship is to listen. It's to listen. Verse 12, but who can see their own errors? Amen. I mean, David, in this moment of saying, you know, I think you're quiet, but I know you're speaking, and I know your law speaks within me. But here's the truth of it. Who can discern their own errors? Keep me from unwillful sin. Now, he's going to stretch it more. In fact, he's going to, the next thing he's going to say is completely revolutionary and off the chart. Because you can be forgiven if you just messed up. But in the old Jewish law, you couldn't be forgiven if you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. You know what the next sentence is? And forgive me for willful sin. Just forgive me when I decided to do it anyway. You know, all the scholars must have gone, you can't pray that. That would be grace. We're not having grace. Would you keep me from this thing I can't see? I know what I know, but I don't know what I don't know. And so often I'm busy talking instead of listening. And I'm busy getting angry instead of being the humble servant they've invited me to be. 1885, Carl Boberg was, uh, lives in a coastal village in uh, a little town in Sweden. And he had been uh, making his way home, and there was a terrific storm going on. And really, you know, felt like that the whole world was coming apart. And as he made his way to his little house, he finally made it in. And when he got there, the sun came out suddenly and a very tranquil moment. And he threw open the doors of his little uh, house to let that fresh air in coming off the ocean after this massive storm. And he immediately sat down and he began to write a poem. The poem is called Ostor Gund. It was written in 1885, as I said. It really didn't get much notoriety until much later. In about 1925, Samuel Hines heard it in the Ukraine. He was there on missionary work, 
and he heard the song, heard the poem, and he decided to translate it into English. And so in 1925, he translated it. He really didn't see the light of day. He took a lot of liberties because it was very difficult to take the Swedish verse and turn it into an English verse, but he finally did. And it really started to circulate late. About 1949, it starts to circulate a little bit. J. Edwin Orr was a British-American missionary who happened to be in India, and Samuel Hines somehow transacted, and he heard the English translation of the poem, which had now been set to music. And he brought it home to the United States. Edwin Orr was teaching a series of conferences at universities around the United States at the time. In the early 50s, then, he began to share this song, which was now entitled, How Great Thou Art. And he shared it as a part of that conference. In one of those conferences, there were two kids present, and their father was a man named Tim Spencer. And so the two Spencer children heard the song, How Great Thou Art, and they took it home to their father, Tim Spencer. Now, Tim Spencer's not a name that you know, but he sang with a couple of people you might know. One of the guy's names was Bob Nolan. Probably don't know Bob well, unless you happen to be a follower of their particular brand of music. The third person in the group was more famous. His name was Roy Rogers. The three of them together made up a group called the Sons of the Pioneers. And the Sons of the Pioneers now had in their possession a song called How Great Thou Art. Tim Spencer also owned Man of Music, and he decided that Man of Music would record and publish How Great Thou Art. And he began to push that it be played on radio stations around the United States. Listening on one of those radio stations one day was a young man named George Beverly Shea. And George Beverly Shea loved the song, took it to his boss, a guy you may have heard of, Billy Graham. And it became one of the primary hymns of the Billy Graham Crusades of the 1950s and 60s. However, the song did not gain its ultimate popularity until 1967 when Elvis Presley recorded it and won his first Grammy for this song. He won two Grammys singing How Great Thou Art, by the way. He re-recorded it live in 1973. We don't give out a lot of Grammys for hymns anymore. You thought it was a really, really old hymn, didn't you? You thought it was ancient. It didn't even get popular until the late 50s and 60s. But those original words are still incredibly powerful. Oh, Lord, my God. When I in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. And when I think that God your Son not sparing, send him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, you bled and died. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. Then I will bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. It may seem like he's silent, but he's working. 
and he's always speaking. And true worship is reverently listening. In the 1990s, Matt Redman was uh, one of the great songwriters in America, very popular, lots of things getting written, uh, coming out of their great church. Soul Survivor is the name of the church. Mike Pilavachi was the pastor at the time. 30,000 or so people in that era of great megachurches that were growing. And they were doing it all. I mean, Matt Redman was writing a lot of worship music that was going straight out. Uh, churches around the world singing, kind of Hillsong before there was Hillsong, Bethel before it was Bethel. And Pastor Mike called in the worship team and said to them, it feels like we've missed something in worship, that something's going on here that isn't quite right, that we're not really worshiping around what the heart of it all is. And he proposed a very radical idea. For one year, we're going to change the way we worship. He physically had the lighting system taken out of the church. He physically had the sound system taken out of the church. And this church, 30,000 strong, known for its great worship, <laughs> were left to sing a cappella together. Matt Redmond says, for a guy that's writing music <laughs> and performing music every week, it was a heartbreaking moment. The first few weeks, we could hardly find our voices. It was just an awkward, weird silence every week. He said, but somewhere in there, people started to find their voices, and they started to sing again. And worship became something that was very reflective. It became something that was very precious. About six months into the experience, Matt said, I sat down on the end of my bed, and I began to journal. And in all honesty, it was a very anguished journaling. I, I didn't know where my career was going. I didn't know where the future was. Here I was, I was in a church leading worship and we weren't really worshiping and we weren't really doing the things that we were capable of doing and we weren't really giving the excellence that we could give. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a part of it and I didn't know if I wanted to keep going. And I wrote and just sort of put it out there. Six months later, as the year came to an end and the church felt like it was time to re-engage and they brought the lighting system back in and they re-engaged the sound system, Matt sat down with Mike and said, here's some things I journaled six months ago in the middle of this thing. I don't know what it means. And they talked together and prayed together and edited together. And when the church gathered again to worship in the way they had been, it was this song that was a part of that celebration, When the Music Fades. And all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the ways that appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, where it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it, because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours. Every single breath, I'll bring you more than a song. Because a song in itself is not what you have required. We're going to close and sing around that. And I, I just want you, as a band comes back, to keep these things in your head. Number one, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What are you missing? What are you missing 
that God wants you to see and wants you to know. It may seem like he's silent, but know this, he is working. And he is speaking. And true worship is reverently listening. Maybe as you go out into this week, this, this is the mantra. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. God, as we close, we're inviting you to just open our hearts, our minds, our spirits to what it is you have to say. The truth is our brains, our hearts, our minds, our lives are so busy. They're so full. And we get caught up. We get caught up watching and looking and reading and remind us that followers of God worship God. We quiet our hearts and our minds and we listen. You have something to say. You have something to say today to the people who are gathered here. You you have something to say this week. You have something to say about our culture, about our world, about the body of Christ and how we love each other. You have something to say about our attitudes. So God, would you help us to get back to the heart of worship where it's all about you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this together. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.